0: Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, episode 31. I'm Terence O'Grady and in this episode we're going to take a look at one of the most famous of all the Beethoven piano sonatas, number 23, Opus 57 in F minor, the Appassionata. Regarding this period in Beethoven's life and this work in particular, Beethoven biographer Swafford writes that the Appassionata is a story of voids, abysses and dashed hopes. In those years, in the middle of his all-but-superhuman productivity, holding at bay the gnawing miseries of his health and deafness and his frustrated love for Josephine Dame, incipient despair was Beethoven's most intimate companion. But he had vowed to live for his art, and as long as his art ran strong, he never contemplated Breaking that vow. Now, as with all artists, his own suffering became grist for the mill. Swafford's language may be a bit on the flowery side, but it's difficult to be too critical of the points he's making. Beethoven's productivity in this period, in which he was also working on or at least developing ideas for the great Eroica symphony and an early version of his opera, Leonora, among other things, was all but superhuman, and although he frequently put on a brave front in regard to his encroaching deafness and other intermittently serious health problems, there is no question that these things plagued him and occasionally drove him into bouts of depression. Swofford's point in regard to Beethoven's feelings for Josephine Dame is more difficult to substantiate, But there are a number of sources that deal with Beethoven's many romantic disappointments over the years, and I'll leave it to them to sort out how these may or may not have affected him in any given period. So let's turn now to the sonata itself in F minor, considered a tragic key by Beethoven, as a number of commentators have pointed out. The opening measures for the first movement 12 a time and marked allegro assai are as compelling and powerful as any beethoven composed their pianissimo dynamic marking notwithstanding as far as the publisher's nickname for the work of which beethoven did not completely approve these opening measures may well be considered more darkly dramatic and or ominous than passionate in the sense most modern listeners would understand those terms But almost all listeners hear the opening measures as possessed of a decidedly intense emotional quality. What is it in the music that lends it that quality? Let's take a closer look. We begin with a descending arpeggio of a tonic F minor chord, the hands playing two octaves apart, starting on the upbeat to the opening measure and finishing deep in the piano's lower range. Then, after sitting on the root of the chord briefly, we move back up the F minor chord, much as we came down, propelled by a three note pickup figure. In the third measure we encounter a new chord, an inverted C major chord. Presumably we hear it as the dominant in the key of F minor, and it is followed in the second half of the measure by its full diminished seventh leading tone chord which points us to the dominant chord with a little more energy when it returns in the third measure. By the way, that full diminished seventh chord I just mentioned, you'll hear it in just a minute, is adorned with a trill followed by a neighbor-tone figure. And although when we hear it in this context, that figure seems to be no more than an ornamental detail, Kenneth Drake has made the point that neighboring-tone figures like this where the main tone is embellished first by a note a step below it and then a step above it, becomes an important motivic idea within the entire movement, although in many cases residing below the surface, so to speak. At any rate, the idea from the first four bars is now presented again, but unexpectedly, it comes back up a half-step. So now we're descending and then ascending a G-flat major triad rather than an F-minor triad, with the remaining chords in the pattern adjusted accordingly. So, after eight measures, we end up exactly half a step higher than in the opening phrase, closing on an inverted D-flat major chord, the dominant chord in G-flat major. A description like the one I just provided explains part of what happens musically in the first eight bars, but of course it doesn't begin to explain the effect made on the listener. In this case, a mixture of mystery, foreboding, and then an uncertain sense of repose when we finally pause on the inverted dominant chord in G-flat major. We know the feeling of repose will probably be short-lived, but we don't yet know what will replace it. In fact, we're actually going to return to F minor and represent the original phrase, but with a new twist. But before I get to that new twist, let me say just a word about the key of G flat. Since the piece begins so clearly in F minor, it might be considered a little surprising that we move into such a distant key so quickly within the exposition. But the key of G flat represents a Neapolitan relationship to F minor. That is, it's built on the chord that's on the lowered, in this case flatted, second scale degree in that key. Now many other composers dating back well into the Baroque era have made use of this particular chromatic relationship. Chords built on the lower second scale degree have often been used as exotic sounding dominant preparations. In other words, their job is to resolve to the dominant chord, and it sort of does here as well, but not directly. But as you may recall from some previous episodes, Beethoven has been especially fond of exploiting that Neapolitan relationship, sometimes in novel ways, and that's exactly what he's doing here. But now back to the next section of the movement. Beginning in measure 9, we seem to be more or less returning to F minor. In fact, measures 9 and 10 are really just variants of measures 3 and 4, with the inverted dominant chord in F minor going to its leading tone chord, and then back again to the dominant. But now, a very distinctive new element is added to the mix. Here are measures 9 through 13. The new element, of course, is the distinctive new four-note rhythmic motive, short, 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 long, three staccato eighths followed by a quarter note. We've definitely heard Beethoven make use of that rhythm before, but probably never as conspicuously and perhaps unexpectedly as he does here. It is, of course, also the same distinctive rhythmic motive, the so-called fate motive, that provides the glue for much of the first movement of the 5th symphony and it's usually assumed that Beethoven had already begun sketching some ideas for that work in 1804 the same period in which he was working on this sonata he doesn't make use of the same interval pattern as in the more famous example in the 5th symphony here it's mostly a descending half step when appearing in the bass clef anyway echoing on a micro level that Neapolitan relationship again. But the rhythmic motive draws so much attention to itself in this context, it almost wouldn't matter what melodic intervals were involved. Here's the passage starting at measure 9 where we reintroduce the dominant chord in F minor and soon afterward introduce the distinctive short 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 long motive followed by the rapid arpeggios that take us to the fermata on the dominant chord. After the fermata on the dominance, we return to the opening motive of the movement, the descending F minor triad. But as you'll hear in a minute, instead of an austere single line played two octaves apart pianissimo, we encounter a massive measure and a half variant of the ascending triadic motive, now syncopated with the right hand playing in full four-part block chords, with the left hand reiterating the same block chords. It's loud, it's thickly textured, and it makes a very dramatic contrast with what came before. This is followed immediately by a return to the original very quiet version of the ascending triadic motive, which is in turn followed by another fortissimo version of the ascending block chord motive we just heard, now on C major, the dominant chord. But then we immediately quiet again when a variant of measure 3 is introduced. That was the measure that first introduced the trilling figure with the lower neighbors. But then there's yet another powerful interruption. The block chord ascending arpeggios on C return fortissimo, followed again by another return of the very quiet trilling figure. The number and intensity of these back and forth dynamic contrasts and surges are really unprecedented or at least so it seemed to early critics and commentators. So is what I just described just a varied repeat of the first theme. It might seem so at first since all the motives employed are familiar, but this new section after the fermata is certainly a lot more fragmented with a much more troubled continuity than the opening theme. Especially with all of those repeated contrasts involving not only the dynamic level, but the textural density as well. And there's another key difference. Although it takes a while to manifest itself, the final time we hear a repeat of measure three, the C major chord morphs into a dominant seventh on E flat, which is just about the first clear indication that a modulation lies ahead. So, in retrospect, It seems that what Beethoven has done here is similar to something we've seen in some previous episodes when dealing with sonata forms. After stating the first theme, he moves to a varied, in this case substantially varied, version of the first theme, but then morphs it into a modulatory transition to the new key. We'll hear it from just after the quiet fermata on the dominant chord in F minor, through to the beginning of the transition section that will eventually take us to the new key for the second subject. As you heard at the end of my excerpt, the transition away from F minor is characterized by pulsating triplets on E-flat in the left hand, this note being the dominant note in the key we're moving to, and occasional chords in the right hand, some quiet and some with sforzando accents. At first it almost seems as if we're headed toward a flat minor, but when the second theme actually arrives, it's in a flat major. I'll play it in just a minute. Commentators frequently make two points when discussing this second theme. First, the fact that it is in some respects similar to the first, not demonstrating nearly as much contrast with the first subject as we're used to hearing. And second, and less frequently, that the theme may be derived at least in part from a traditional Scottish-English folk song titled On the Banks of Allan Water. In regard to its similarities to the first subject, there's no question that they share certain rhythmic patterns. Of course, the melodic contours of the opening measures of each theme are quite different. The second subject begins with an ascending triad based on the new tonic of A flat major, and after peaking a third higher, begins a gradual descent. The first subject, on the other hand, begins with a triadic descent down the F minor triad followed by a direct ascent of the same triad. So the two themes are far from identical, but they do present a certain homogeneity of mood, and that is presumably what has drawn the attention of commentators focusing on their similarity. The second point that is occasionally made about the second theme, and sometimes even the first as well, has to do with its proposed similarity with the Scottish or English folk song I mentioned earlier. It's not beyond the realm of possibility that Beethoven would be aware of such a tune. After all, he later spent a surprising amount of time making arrangements of similar melodies at the behest of his publishers. The question is whether in this case there's a direct connection between the two melodies. Here is Beethoven's second very noble theme, marked Dolce and Pianissimo, and only four bars long in its initial statement and harmonized primarily by repeated tonic and dominant arpeggios low in the range the melody then begins to repeat but is soon interrupted as we enter into another transition passage where the texture thins and a flat major appears to yield to a flat minor and after a while a series of trills and a long very quiet chromatic descent from high in the piano's range prepares the closing section Here now is a version of the first part of the melody of On the Banks of Allen Water. Are there important similarities between the two melodies? There certainly are some similarities. Both begin with an ascending triadic arpeggio, starting on the third of the tonic chord. The first two note values shorter, the third longer. And then the melody for both moves up another third within the chord. Then both descend, although the interval patterns are a little different. The Scottish song then dips down a fourth. Beethoven's does as well, but not before it has again ascended based on the notes of the dominant triad. So, how definitive are these similarities? The problem is that the sort of melodic activity I've described is widely encountered in all sorts of melodies. In this case, the new themes certainly begin in similar ways, but divergences appear almost immediately after that. How much of a given melody must be replicated in a second melody for it to be considered as derived from the first? It's an age-old problem and the reason that folklorists and ethnomusicologists sometimes disagree on relationships between traditional English, Scottish, or Irish melodies. At any rate, back to Beethoven. After the transition you just heard, we enter the closing section. At first glance, it's just a series of pumping arpeggios based on sixteenth notes in both hands, now clearly in A-flat minor, abounding in tension chords and dramatic dynamic surges. But of course, in the hands of a skilled pianist, a clear melodic line does emerge, first in the right hand and later in the left. After ten very dramatic measures, the music quiets and thins out somewhat for the last six measures, and we diminuendo into a pianissimo cadence on A-flat in a passage that some commentators refer to as a codetta. no double bar or repeat to mark the beginning of the development section, but it's clear enough. It begins quietly with a reference to the first theme, both the motive from the opening two bars and the trill and neighbor tone figure first heard in the third measure. Initially, we appear to be moving toward A minor, but soon E minor is proclaimed dramatically as the first two bars of the first theme are introduced forte in the left hand. Those same two bars, or variants of them, are asserted again and again, from low in the piano's left-hand range to high in the right-hand, above or below swirling arpeggios as the tonality fluctuates, and we find ourselves first in C minor and then a flat major, but always, so it seems, in constant motion from one dramatic outburst to the next. Right at the end of my excerpt, you heard things settle down a bit in A flat major, as the repeated note triplets we heard first in the modulatory transition reappear. Their function here is much the same as in the exposition. They'll deliver us to a version of the second theme. It won't be in the original key, of course. This time will be in D flat major initially, and after he states the theme in more or less its original form, Beethoven will almost immediately begin to play with the component parts, quickly switching from piano to forte and insinuating new keys along the way. Here is the second theme as it first appears in the development section, leaving out much of the transitional passage that brought us there. After the references to the second subject have played out, you'll hear the beginning of a tonally mystifying transition passage Based primarily on E diminished seventh chord arpeggios pedaled together for several measures in a row. It's hard to guess where Beethoven is going with these repeated diminished seventh chords all peddled together to create a considerable sonority. F major and D minor are among the likely possibilities, but we're not going to get any clarity on this matter for quite a while. The question of where Beethoven is going with all this gets even a little more perplexing when he reintroduces that distinctive short-short-short-long motive that we originally heard introduced in the second part of the first subject. He pounds it briefly but aggressively into our consciousness for only four measures, but it makes an impression nevertheless. Interestingly, he does not employ the same articulation markings. The first three eighths given a staccato note to make them even shorter. Some editors assume that this is an engraver's mistake or that Beethoven simply overlooked the discrepancy and they supply the missing articulation marks themselves. Others do not, and pianists themselves take different views of the situation. Charles Rosen makes some especially interesting points in this connection in his book on the Beethoven piano sonatas, so those wishing to follow up a little on this matter may want to consult him. Here, at any rate, is the passage in question, which leads almost immediately to the recapitulation, which begins predictably with a restatement of the first subject in the original toniki of F minor. It's not exactly the same, naturally. Beethoven wants to frame it a little differently this time, and he does so by accompanying it with eighth note triplets on C, creating a reiterated dominant pedal. The pedalator shifts up a half step when the theme shifts to G flat major, and moves again after that to match the changing harmonies. are some other changes from the exposition, and you heard one of them right at the end of my excerpt, where after the fermata, Beethoven introduces a string of syncopated block chords ascending in arpeggio fashion, but this time the block chords are all built on F major rather than F minor, and as a result, sound quite a bit less sinister. Also the second subject when it arrives is in F major rather than F minor. But that change is more predictable. After versions of the closing section and brief coedetta are worked through, Beethoven then introduces a new coda. But it's based mostly on familiar material, and since we've spent quite a bit of time on this first very remarkable movement, we're going to move on now to the second. It's a theme in variations based on a chorale like theme, and as in some other theme in variations movements, can be seen as a bit of relief from the first movement intensity. But although very different from the first movement, with its D-flat major key, 2-4 meter, andante con moto tempo marking, and relatively calm demeanor, it's a movement in which the listener nevertheless becomes hypersensitive to the slightest change in the flow, the smallest shift in continuity. Melodically, the movement is equally active in both the top and bottom voices, from beginning to end. Starting with its dignified andante con molto tempo, but sensitive dolce and legato expressive markings, the top voice melody, harmonized in block chords, barely moves at all for the first four bars. It starts on the fifth scale degree in the key and shifts up by a single note twice, once in the first measure in quarter notes, and once on an eighth note after a dotted quarter in the second. Both times, it returns to the original pitch level right away, and the first phrase ends with three iterations of that note. As you could hear in my excerpt, The bass line, generally moving at least an octave below the right hand chords, also has the character of a strong melodic line, although it may not be obvious until it introduces its octave leap and dotted note pattern starting in the third measure, which carries us into the next phrase. The harmonies to this point, very rich sounding because of the low range of the sonorities and the use of some closely spaced dissonances, are initially restricted to tonic, subdominant, and dominant seventh chords, with a very impactful struck suspension heard on the tonic chord in measure three. The next phrase of four bars, which together with the first four constitute the first half of the main theme, begins again on the tonic. Melodically, the top voice is even more static than in the first four bars. Beginning on the tonic this time, it moves only once nudging down to the leading tone right before its last repetition of the tonic note. But if the top voice is more static, it is more than made up for in the movement heard in the lowest left-hand part, and in the inner voices beneath the top voice. The lowest voice begins much as before, although now beginning up an octave. But then, in the second measure of the phrase, it plunges down after a dotted quarter note from D flat to B double flat, a very ear-catching interval. And the movement above it is very ear-catching as well. The inner voices beneath the top voice melody descend by chromatic half-step. And the net result of all this activity is a chord we've seen before. It's a German sixth chord which will soon resolve to a dominant chord, as it usually does although this time that chord is adorned with another suspended dissonance. But even if the ingredients are fairly common, somehow in this context it sounds very fresh, almost like a new invention, and clearly represents the emotional peak of the melody to that point. Here are the second four bars, finishing again with the descending dotted note fragment I mentioned earlier. Of course it's all very quiet and understated, but it's a marvelous touch which gives a real element of distinction to the beginning of the theme, subtle though it may be. The second half of the theme is also made up of two balanced four-bar phrases. It's more active from a rhythmic perspective, with dotted note figures abounding, and in places exhibits a more shapely melodic contour with new motives erupting higher into the treble clef range. The first bar of the second four-measure phrase replicates the first measure of the first phrase and the second is a variant of the fourth bar of the first phrase, but moving even higher into the treble clef area. There is no surprising intrusion of a chromatic chord this time, but you'll notice that at times the dissonances, notably the seventh of a dominant seventh chord, are placed at the bottom of the chord in the bass clef, resulting in a rather thick, almost muddy texture. Here is the entire second part of the theme, all eight measures, again without repeat and once again closing with that descending dotted note fragment. In the first of three variations, the first eight bars employ the same melody as the theme for the most part, but now in shorter note values, directing our attention more to the bass line, which is a gently but cleverly syncopated version of the original bass line. The harmonic pattern remains the same, but the new syncopations lend it a fresh quality. Here are the first eight bars. The second eight bars of the first variation depart from the original theme more noticeably, the left hand popping into the treble clef range from time to time and introducing brief staggered ascending motives not heard in the original theme. This variation also introduces a steady crescendo from the beginning of the section not heard in the original theme, but it fades back to piano in the final measures as did the original. The second variation is less subtle and, frankly, probably less interesting in and of itself, although it plays an important role in the overall sequence of variations. The bass line represents something of a simplification of the original bass line for the first eight bars, although it displays a little more rhythmic energy in the second eight. The right hand for both sections unfolds in a series of arpeggios which outline the original melody while supporting it harmonically. I'm going to play only the first section. After the rather passive second variation, the third is slightly more robust and virtuosic with its pervasive flow of thirty-second notes, although the basic melodic and harmonic materials remain the same. The movement ends with a slightly varied version of the original theme, leading to two final diminished chords, each held with a fermata, the first pianissimo and the second fortissimo. With an Ataka indication, these lead us directly into the final movement. Here is the first part of the third and last variation. After this mostly rather serene slow movement, movement 3 is an extremely dynamic one in F minor to 4 and marked allegro manontropo and initially fortissimo and it comes to life in a rather unorthodox manner. The introduction has two main components. The first is an unusual repetition of a dominant minor ninth chord in inversion fortissimo It's pounded sharply into our ears for five bars, heard 13 times altogether, animated by a series of dotted rhythm figures. This is followed by a whirling dervish or whirlwind of a figure, Rosen refers to it as perpetual motion, which stops and starts a couple of times before it takes flight. Here's the initial motive, which undulates and then descends by step in its earliest form, a simplified and slowed down version. Okay, here's the complete introduction, the first five bars fortissimo, and then dropping down to piano for the introduction of the perpetual motion theme, right and left hands together and octave apart. When the actual first subject arrives, it turns out that it's really just a variant of the perpetual motion introduction theme. The first measure, played by the right hand in the bass clef, is new. It's based on an ascending arpeggio of the tonic chord, which starts on the offbeat after a left-hand assertion of the tonic note. But the second measure is identical to the first measure of the perpetual motion figure from the introduction. Those two bars then repeat and then are moved up a half step to suggest a G flat chord, that Neapolitan relationship again. But we're soon back to dominant seventh and tonic chords in F minor. Let's hear that much of the first subject, the first eight bars. A very compelling theme, simultaneously breathless and mysterious. After eight bars, he adds a new element, one that looks ahead to the second subject. As the right hand repeats the theme, the left hand crosses over the right hand to provide, while it's really more of a counter-motive than a counter-melody, it's a three-note motive in longer note values, harmonized in thirds, dipping down a third melodically. It becomes more prominent as we go, although it is eventually shifted back down to the bass clef range in the left hand, as the original theme transforms into a series of ascending chordal arpeggios, including some new chromatic chords, while migrating to the treble clef in the right hand. This section is rife with dramatic surges and sforzando accents, and eventually the parts flip again, with the new counter motive actually developing into more of an actual counter melody in the treble clef range. As you may have noticed, we're still in F minor, but we're not obviously going to stay there forever, and in fact a modulatory transition is just around the corner, although it begins as simply a varied repetition of the first theme, which of course is not at all unusual. It's not long before the original tonic of F minor is undermined and gradually replaced by C minor. This is the key of the minor dominant, of course not the relative major of A-flat as we might have anticipated. But minor dominance, as we know from some previous episodes, are by no means unheard of for the second subject key. And here the minor key helps keep the intensity level high and adds to the quality of seamlessness, which is an important part of the exposition as a whole. As the second subject appears, we immediately notice its similarity to the countermelody from the first subject, especially in its use of parallel thirds, although the melodic contour is a bit different here and the thirds are later replaced by full three-part chords. And, the primary motive from the first subject, or fragments thereof, also remains with us for several measures into the second subject. Here is the transition going into the second subject and the second subject itself. have noticed that Beethoven doesn't remain locked into the key of C minor. He wanders away briefly, even touching on D-flat major chords, that Neapolitan relationship again. But after twenty-one measures, he cadences solidly on C minor again, as we're introduced to the closing section, Forte. Even here the main motivic thrust of the first subject is present, although we also hear some new ideas, notably repeated block chords in eighth notes high in the right-hand range against scurrying descending lines of sixteenth notes in the left hand. The texture does thin out and the dynamic level quiets in the final measures, but a series of diminished seventh chord arpeggios assure that there's no letdown in terms of tension as we head into the development section. Here's the closing section. We head directly into the development section with no repeat of the exposition indicated, and in fact the flow is fairly continuous. The diminished seventh chords at the end of the closing section make the tonality somewhat ambiguous, but the situation gets a little clearer when we enter the development. The first chord we hear is a dominant minor ninth in B flat minor, the key of the subdominant although it's a while before we actually encounter a B flat minor chord. Melodically, we hear, softly in the right hand, a repeated quotation of the beginning of the first theme, adapted to the new harmonic context. Eventually, the left hand becomes more active, and we hear a couple of bars where the two hands play fragments of the first theme against each other. Not for long though, as the left hand soon falls into an accompaniment pattern involving triadic arpeggios. We actually stay in B-flat minor longer than you might expect, given that this is a development section, and we would normally expect to touch on a number of different keys rather quickly. Beethoven does, however, enliven the harmony with another Neapolitan sixth chord at one point. Here are the final measures of the exposition going into the first part of the development section. Twenty-four measures into the development section, Beethoven introduces a new idea. Since it's based to a large extent on ascending and descending half-steps, and we've seen a lot of those, you could easily argue that it's not a brand new idea. But the syncopated rhythm is certainly new, a repeated short-long-short staccato eighth-quarter staccato eighth pattern with the second note accented and it makes a nice break from the almost continuous flow of sixteenth notes until this point. It's true that the left hand accompaniment still provides us with sixteenth notes, but even these are a little different now, falling into broken chord accompaniment patterns rather than linear ones or arpeggios. Here is the new idea in the development section, which ends up cadencing in F minor. At that point we hear another reference to the opening motive from the first theme, played now in another passage of sometimes independent counterpoint, although the passage ends with a two-octave descent played in octaves between the hands, after which we hear a brief but powerful passage of rising and then falling staccato eighths in the left hand against offbeat sixteenths in the right hand. That idea cuts off sharply, With a transition passage made up of ascending sixteenth note arpeggios, expressing, no surprise here, the Neapolitan sixth chord. After a measure pause, we hear a dominant seventh and then a leading tone diminished seventh. All of this is very quiet, as is the passage that follows, in which the texture thins out dramatically and we sit on a dominant pedal for several measures, All of this preparing us for the big reveal of the tonic chord that begins the recapitulation. Here's an excerpt that takes us all the way from the introduction of the new syncopated motive through to the end of the development section. In the recapitulation, the first subject, predictably, returns pianissimo in F minor. It's not an exact duplicate of its initial appearance, but it's not far from it. Before the theme is repeated, Beethoven introduces a new counter motive, five notes long, ascending by step and then dropping a third. There's not much to it, but it's played three times and gives a little relief from all the repetition of that first theme. When the second theme returns, it's in F minor as well, as is the closing section. This time there is a repeat of both the development and recapitulation sections indicated, with the first and second ending provided. It's not unusual to see the second part of a sonata form movement with a repeat indicated in an 18th century symphony, although most conductors in more recent decades have cheerfully ignored those repeats in performance. Still, this repeat of both development and recapitulation was rare at this point in history. But Beethoven was adamant about this repeat, And the result is that the proportions are a little different than for many sonata form movements. Rosen has suggested that it makes the movement almost rondo like because of the frequency with which the main theme returns and in different keys. And things become even more unconventional when you consider that the piece does not end after the repeat. There is, in fact, a fairly lengthy coda after the repeat and that coda is played presto, perhaps twice as fast as the earlier part of the movement. Now, in the last episode, I referred to the fact that the finale of the triple concerto, a rondo, sported a faster, high-spirited coda that didn't have much to do with the thematic ideas previously introduced, somewhat in the manner of an opera aria cabaletta. Do we have a similar situation here? Here's the conclusion of the movement beginning from the conclusion of the recapitulation on its repeat and extending through to the final chords. So what can we say about the presto coda? It's not exactly flippant in the same way the coda for the triple concerto finale was, but neither does it demonstrate the intensity or turbulence that characterizes so much of the rest of this movement. Half a century later, we might be tempted to call it a Hungarian dance, and perhaps a tongue-in-cheek one at that. It provides such a great deal of contrast to that all-pervasive first theme melody that its presence in and of itself evokes the Rondo style, a style in which clearly contrasting episodes are to be expected and which sometimes are particularly notable for their color and their dance-like qualities. So the presence of this tune really reaffirms Rosen's suggestion that this movement must be considered, at least in terms of style, if not strictly in terms of form, akin to a rondo. Of course, a rondo wouldn't end with an episode like this one, and neither does Beethoven in this finale. As you heard in my excerpt, the familiar first theme makes a final reappearance before the last few measures sweep us to the conclusion with a series of accented and pedaled arpeggios on F minor. What is there to say about the sonata as a whole? In my last episode, I referred to this work as an unquestioned masterpiece. It is certainly little questioned. Some might harp a bit on the slow movement lacking as it does the emotional weight heard in many of the composer's mature slow movements. But it does provide a perfect respite from the intensity demonstrated in the first movement, and allows that intensity to be freshly reinstated in the third, without sounding labored or forced. And speaking of intensity, the first and last movements of the sonata are unparalleled embodiments of that intensity at least among the early and middle period sonatas. Yes, the coda for the finale is a little puzzling, but Beethoven may well have been providing the listener with just the sort of detour that would make the final statement of the theme seem exhilarating all over again. At any rate, we'll close the book on the Appassionata Sonata and move on in the next episode to talk about the great piano concerto Number 4 in G major, Opus 58.